Everyone in the Northern Hemisphere of the Earth is dead. The year is 1964 and World War III has involved nuclear weapons. Melbourne, Australia is the last major functioning city on Earth. The thing is, blowing the city's way is radioactive fallout. The hopes for humanity is that the levels of radiation will fall to a non-lethal level before it arrives. The problem is, it's not falling, but rising. In the United States, where everybody should be dead, there's a strange, mysterious Morse code signal being transmitted. And while all this is going on, the people in Australia try to forget their problems on the beach. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff, and today we're going to do something a bit different. January 26 was Australia Days the official National Day of Australia. To celebrate, Russell is going to do most of the heavy work today. The film we are looking at is called On the Beach from 1959. I'll be back in the middle of the show to talk about my views on the film, and then I'll come back at the end. So now, take it away, Russell. Hello Celluloiders, Russell here. In honour of Australia Day, Jeff is presenting an Australian-themed music this week. Now, there are many worthy contenders for such a topic, but the 1959 film On the Beach is literally close to home for me. It is set in my home city of Melbourne, the neighbouring suburb to me, Frankston, the town of Berwick, where a number of my family members live, and we've all been to Phillip Island. It's not just an ordinary movie either. It has three of Hollywood's top Golden Era stars, Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner and Fred Astaire, and young newcomer Anthony Perkins. Top-line director-producer Stanley Kramer. And not only that, the war comes to an end as well. On the Beach was adapted from the novel by Neville Shute, an English novelist who began writing in the mid-twenties as a sideline for his day job, which was a top aeronautical engineer for Vickers. His full name was Neville Shute Norway, and among projects he worked on were the giant airship R-100, along with famed engineer Barnes Wallace of Dam Buster Bomb fame. And Neville also came up with a rocket spear, which was an important anti-U-boat weapon in the Battle of the Atlantic. Post-war, Neville got fed up with austerity in the British taxman, 
uh, moved to Australia and his 1950s novels had Australian themes. His A Town Like Alice, about people who get caught up in the Japanese-Singapore occupation, was also filmed and later adapted into a TV miniseries, and in 1957 came On the Beach. Set several years in the future, the book describes how an atomic war in the Northern Hemisphere has created an enormous cloud of radioactive fallout, which has killed most of the world's population through radiation sickness, with only a few areas in the Southern Hemisphere being unaffected. But the cloud is ever-expanding. The Australian city of Melbourne is the largest population centre surviving, and its inhabitants carry on in the hope they will all be spared. Shoot's book was a bestseller, selling 4 million copies in the first years of its release, and it was picked up by Stanley Kramer, an independent Hollywood producer-director who specialised in serious message films, not just simple entertainment. Kramer had performed odd jobs in the movie industry in the 30s, ranging from screenwriting internships to set furniture mover, to film cutter, to writer researcher and associate producer, and then worked on army training films during World War II. However, Kramer found that jobs in the Hollywood post-war were rare, as the studio system had started to break down with the inroads of television. So with a group of friends and colleagues, Kramer created an independent production company, Screenplays Inc. The new company was able to take advantage of unused production facilities by renting time, allowing him to create independent films for a fraction of the cost the larger studios had required, and he did this without studio control. Interestingly, this is also what low-budget filmmakers like Roger Corman and Ed Wood tried to do, but Kramer had Hollywood credibility and knew what he was doing. Kramer also saw this as an opportunity to produce films dealing with subjects the studios had previously avoided, especially those about controversial topics. Kramer soon learned that financing such independent films was a major obstacle as he was forced to approach banks or else take on private investors. He did both when necessary, but there were over 90 similar independents all chasing the same buck, and these included some big names. Kramer differentiated his company from the others, explaining, Instead of relying on star names, we pinned our faith in stories that had something to say. If it happened to be something that other movies didn't say before, so much the better. The only basis of choice was personal taste. His taste failed with the company's first movie, So This Is New York, in 1948, which failed at the box office, but Champion, a low-budget quickie about an ambitious and unscrupulous boxer, played by Kirk Douglas, became an immense box office success. It won an Academy Award for Best Editing with four other nominations, including Douglas for Best Actor and Foreman as Screenwriter. Home of the Brave became an even bigger success. Its story was adapted from a play which had been about anti-Semitism in the army, but was revised and made into a film about the persecution of a black soldier and was the first sound film about anti-black racism. The subject matter was so sensitive at the time that Kramer shot the film in total secrecy to avoid protests by various organisations. Next came The Men in 1950, a drama about paraplegic war veterans, and it featured Marlon Brando's screen debut. Director Fred Zimmerman said, They struck me as being enormously efficient. Kramer was very inventive in finding unlikely sources of finance. This method of outside financing was truly original and far ahead of its time. There were no luxurious offices, no major studio bureaucracy, no small internal empires to be dealt with, no waste of time or effort. 
I was enthusiastic about this independent setup and the energy it created. Also in 1950 was Kramer's production of Serrano de Bergerac, which made a star of José Ferrer, who won his only Oscar for Best Actor. Zinnemann directed the famous Western High Noon for Kramer in 1952, which won four Oscars but attracted unwelcome attention from the House Un-American Activities Committee. Scriptwriter Carl Foreman, Kramer's business partner and longtime friend, had been a member of the Communist Party ten years earlier, but declined to name names and was branded an uncooperative witness by HUAC and blacklisted by the Hollywood companies. Perhaps not uncoincidentally, Kramer took up a five-year 20-film contract producing Job of Columbia Studios and produced the classics Death of a Salesman, The Wild One, and 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, among others. With a larger budget, his films took on a glossier, more polished look, but despite some high critical praise, his next ten films all lost money. In, 19, in 1953, Columbia boss Harry Cohen and Kramer agreed to terminate the contract Kramer had signed, but the last Columbia film, The Kane Mutiny, regained all the losses Columbia had incurred as a result of the earlier projects. After The Kane Mutiny, Kramer left Columbia and resumed independent productions, this time in the role of the director. He re-established his reputation with a series of controversial films including Not as a Stranger, The Pride and the Passion, The Defiant Ones, Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Not to mention the comedy epic, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. All of these would be great celluloid day subjects, but let's get back to 1959's On the Beach. There had already been several Atomic Armageddon movies in the 50s, but these had either been exploitation potboilers from the likes of Roger Corman, or allegorical monster movies like Godzilla. It took Kramer to give it the A-movie treatment and do a serious story. The movie follows the book closely, but despite this, Shoot disliked the film, thinking his story of ordinary people in extraordinary situations had been made to Hollywood. Gregory Peck plays Captain Dwight Towers, the commander of the last U.S. Navy nuclear submarine, USS Sawfish, which has been travelling the Pacific looking for signs of life, and now docks in Melbourne as the last outpost of humanity. He befriends young Australian naval officer Peter Holmes, played by Anthony Perkins, who invites him to his home in Frankston, where his naive wife Mary, played by Donna Henderson, is in denial about the impending disaster. Peter arranges for Dwight to meet an Australian woman named Moira Davidson, played by Ava Gardner. At a party at Peter's home, scientist Julian Osborne, played by Fred Astaire, gets drunk and slams the foolishness of the society that allowed the disaster to happen. Dwight and Moira continue to meet, but Dwight acts as though his wife and family are still alive and refuses to commit to Moira. Their romance is cut short when the sawfish is sent north to test the theory that the radiation is dissipating, and shortly before they leave, a Morse code signal is detected coming from the west coast of the United States. Peter Holmes has been assigned to travel north with the Americans, and with some difficulty he obtains suicide pills and tries to explain to his wife's fury and disbelief how to kill their baby and herself by taking the suicide pill, should he not return from his mission in time to help her. The submarine sails north to Alaska, but discovering that radiation is actually increasing, goes south to locate the source of the mysterious signal. 
The sawfish arrives in the San Francisco Bay area, but the crew finds an eerily deserted city. Ralph Swain, played by John Mellion, had family in San Francisco and jumped ship to swim ashore. Osborne forms Captain Towers, but Swain's contact with the radioactive environment would quickly make it impossible for him to return without killing everyone on board. The next morning, through the periscope, Captain Towers observes Swain fishing in the bay. Swain apologises for deserting, explaining he preferred to die in his hometown. Towers understands, bids him farewell, and departs for San Diego. At San Diego, communications officer Lieutenant Thunderstorm, played by Hart McGuire, goes ashore wearing radiation gear to search for the source of the signals. At an electric station running on auto control, he finds the Morse code telegraph and discovers a tilted soda pop bottle hanging by its neck from an open window shade's pull cord. Random ocean breezes bump the bottle against the telegraph key which has been sending out the random signals. Sunderstrom uses the Morse code to send a message describing the bleak situation and shuts down the power station's generators. The sawfish crew returns to Australia to enjoy what pleasures remain, Dwight giving them leave until further notice. Hoarded petrol is released so that the last Australian Grand Prix can be held. Osborne races cars as a hobby and enters his beloved restored Ferrari. With nothing left to lose, the racers take crazy risks and many die in various crashes, leaving Osborne as the winner. While reuniting Memora at her father's farm, Towers hears that all US Navy personnel stationed at the base in Brisbane are dead. With the fishing season starting sooner than normal, Towers and Moira begin a fishing trip. At a country stream, drunken revellers surround them. From their resort room, they can hear more busy fishermen singing a version of Waltzing Matilda. Towers and Moira share a romantic interlude while outside a gathering storm house. The fishermen sing an a cappella rendition of the song's foreboding final verse. Returning to Melbourne, Towers learns that one of his crew, Ackerman, played by Joe McCormick, has radiation sickness, meaning the deadly radiation has arrived. The general public queue outside the Queen Victoria Hospital to receive suicide pills, and the religious attend a Salvation Army service outside the Melbourne Museum. Osborne closes himself in a sealed garage with his championship racing car, electing to die from carbon monoxide poisoning as he revs the engine. Towers wants to stay with Mora, but his remaining crew want to head for home to die in the US. He chooses his duty over his love for Moira, joining his crew as they attempt to make it back to radioactive America. Moira watches a swordfish go through the Port Phillip Bay heads and submerge for its final voyage. Within a few days, the last survivors are dead. A montage of windswept, empty streets of Melbourne is punctuated by the rise of dramatic strident music over a single powerful image of the previously seen Salvation Army street banner draped across the Melbourne Museum. There is still time, brother. We'll be back to Russell in just a moment. Now, I had never heard of this movie before until Russell suggested it to me. And luckily for me, Turner Classic Movies just happened to feature post-apocalyptic films including this one. Now, the film is a bit long, well over two hours. And while I enjoyed it, it was one of those films that is a bit uncomfortable to watch. Like, there's always a dark cloud hanging over the whole thing. You know it's not going to end well. In the film, you watched people in parts having a good time, 
forming relationships, raising a baby and all that, and you know they're probably doomed, you know? Well, thanks very much, sir, because I'd like to be home if possible when... Uh... Is there any official estimate as to how much longer? The bigger heads, the finger in the wind, boys, they say calculating the rate of drift or what have you about five months before it gets here. That being said, Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Fred Astaire, Anthony Perkins, and Donna Anderson are all wonderful, and it's worth watching just for them. Ava Gardner was 47 years old when she made this film and still looks fantastic. And Peck, well, he was 53, and he's as handsome as ever. She bottled us. I was trying to win, taking the race too seriously, not paying enough attention to her. Truth is, he made a pass at me. I had to go overboard in self-defense. Well, if that... (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anthony Perkins. Even though at the time he had yet to make Psycho, from a modern-day perspective, it still suffers from Norman Bates. You know what I mean? I mean, it's really hard to watch Anthony Perkins without thinking of Psycho these days. Of course, the audiences in 1969 didn't have that problem. Playing Anthony Perkins' wife in the movie is Donna Anderson, another beautiful woman, and they've got a child, and this presents all types of problems. You're not trying to tell me you want me to kill Jennifer. Mary, don't be an idiot. Supposing you get it first, what are you going to do then? Struggle on by yourself until you drop? Jenny might live for days and be sick and helpless in her crib with you dead on the floor beside her. Don't you see that? Don't you see it? Dancer Fred Astaire proves himself a wonderful actor here. I think most people think of him as a dancer, but he's actually a pretty damn good actor when he's given the chance to play a dramatic part. The background level of radiation in this very room is nine times what it was a year ago. Don't you know that? Nine times. We're all doomed, you know. The whole silly, drunken, pathetic lot of us. Doomed by the air we're about to breathe. We haven't got a chance. I won't have it, Julian. Now, I have to admit, I rolled my eyes at the very end. I mean, the very end. And this is a bit of a spoiler, but uh, I think you might have guessed what the end of this movie is already. Anyway, there are shots of an empty city, all life being gone. And then there's a sign, a banner that reads, There is still time, brother. And I'm like, I get it, message received, nuclear war is bad. Now my favorite scene of the film is this little scene that really doesn't have a lot to do with the plot. John Tate plays Admiral Birdie, and he's got a secretary, Lieutenant Osgood, a very attractive young woman. When the end is near, I thought their final scene was one of the more touching scenes in the movie. Would you have a glass of sherry with an old man? No, sir. But I would very much like to have one with you. Sir. There's one thing that always bothered me, Osgood. A girl like you. Why no young men? They never asked me. I guess maybe it was a uniform. Thanks, Russell. I'm glad you suggested this film. I'm glad I watched it. I did enjoy it. And now we'll go back to you. 
The main actors Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Fred Astaire and Norman Perkins are screen legends and should be familiar to most of you. Peck has been rated 12th greatest male star of classic Hollywood cinema by the American Film Institute and was at the peak of his career at this time, with a string of films including The Yearling, 12 O'Clock High, Captain Horatio Hornblower, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, Roman Holiday, The Big Country, Moby Dick, Pork Chop Hill, and continued into the 60s and 70s with The Guns of Navarone, Cape Fear, To Kill a Mockingbird, McKenna's Gold, and The Omen. He often played roles of troubled men with big problems and decisions to make in films of social conscience, so he was a good choice for Kramer. Ava Gardner was also at the top of her game with Showboat, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, The Stoza Kilimanjaro, The Barefoot Contessa, Bawani Junction, and afterwards 55 Days at Peking, Seven Days in May, The Bible in the Beginning, Maya Ling, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, Earthquake and the Cassandra Crossing. The American Film Institute ranked Gardner number 25 in its greatest female screen legends of classic American cinema list, and she was also a socially conscious performer and a big civil rights campaigner. Fred Astaire was, of course, one of the greatest dancers of Hollywood history and rated by the AFI as the fifth greatest male star of classic Hollywood cinema. His career in stage, film and television spanned 76 years, and he danced for most of it, even in Battlestar Galactica. He was semi-retired by the late 50s, but liked to perform serious roles, so he took on the role of the Australian scientist Osborne. While Anthony Perkins was a year away from his famous role as Norman Bates in Hitchcock's Psycho, he still received fourth billing in titles as big as the others, and was considered an up-and-coming star. He played the young Australian naval officer Lieutenant Commander Peter Holmes, who has to confront his wife's naivety about the impending disaster. Perkins tended to play tortured sympathetic souls in his early films, largely due to homophobic experiences at the various US colleges he attended, but post-Psycho he tended to get quirky villain roles. Most of the secondary roles were taken by Australian actors, some playing American characters. There was an abundant Australian radio drama in the 50s, many of which were local remakes of US series like Dragnet, Tarzan, Superman and Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, so many Australian actors performed US accents. It might seem a bit rude to some of you, come to a country and give the local actors spear carrier roles, but this was long before the era of Mel Gibson, Nicole Kidman and Heath Ledger, and there were no Australian international stars at this time with box office clout. There had been Errol Flynn, of course, but he was in a bad way and died in the same year the movie was made. Rod Taylor was in Hollywood by then, but he did not become a star till George Powell's Time Machine the following year. John Tate played Admiral Bridie, who was a successful stage and radio performer. After On the Beach, he went bush for a couple of years and lived up north with an Aboriginal tribe, then went to work in the UK and did voice work for the Anderson's sci-fi puppet series. His son Nick said the Anderson's familiarity with his father got him the role of Alan Carter on Space 1999. Grant Taylor, who has a spirited discussion with Fred Astaire about atomic deterrence, was also later employed by the Andersons as the gruff General Henderson in the TV series UFO. Taylor had appeared in Australia's pre-World War II feature films, most notably the war epic 40,000 Horsemen, and was considered a top leading man, but wartime restrictions stymied his career, though he was allowed to work in the 1944 Rats of Trabuk movie. Post-war he appeared in what films were made, but he never regained his early impetus. 
Guy Dolman, actually from New Zealand, became a familiar face in 60s and 70s movies and TV, playing a Bond villain in Thunderball and number two in The Prisoner. Other Australian actors in the film are Richard Meikle, Joe McCormick and Kevin Brennan, but the most notable was John Mellion, who plays the deserter sailor Ralph Swain. Mellion was a radio and stage performer from an early age and appeared on early Australian TV, but in the 60s went to the UK and had supporting roles in movies like The Long and the Short and the Tall, Billy Budd, The Longest Day, 633 Squadron and Guns at Batazi. When he returned to Australia, he appeared in the local comedy feature They're a Weird Mob and the hit TV series My Name's Magooly, What's Yours? He played the ever-aspiring factory worker Wally Stiller living with his wife in his father-in-law's Dominic Magooly's humble dockside house and was one of the few Australian comedy series to match the writing quality and pay for the series like Honeymooners or Stiptoe and Son. He then appeared in several of the new Australian cinema movies including Wake in Fright, Walkabout, Peter Weir's The Cars at 8 Paris, The Picture Show Man, and the TV series and movie The Fourth Wish, about a father trying to fill the wishes of his dying son, for which he won the Actor Best Actor Award. He also did a very long-running series of advertisements for Victoria Bitter, making it Australia's most popular beer. Not many here actually drink Foster's Lager, and received an OBE in 1979 for his theatre work. He continued to appear on TV and films, most notably the Paul Hogan hit Crocodile Dundee movies as Walter Riley. Mellion's favourite pub, The Oaks at Neutral Bay, opened the John Mellion OBE bar in his honour, which he frequented over the following decade until his death from cirrhosis in 1989. His Victoria Bitter ads continue to be used well into the 21st century. You can get a dippin'. You can get a chippin'. You can get it having a row. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. Victoria Bitter. You can get it lumpin'. You can get it thumpin'. You can get it any old how. Matter of fact, I got it now. Victoria Bitter. Took place from mid January to March 27, 1959, in Melbourne, Australia, and surrounding towns and areas. Australian film production by the 50s was very limited, so a feature film was a big deal, especially one with so many Hollywood notables attached. The press gave the film and its cast a huge amount of coverage and even told the public where the movie was shooting that day. Fred Astaire once entertained a watching crowd with an impromptu song and dance on Frankston Station. One of the lingering legends surrounding the film was a supposed quote by Ava Gardner describing Melbourne as a perfect place to make a film about the end of the world, alluding to the city's sobriety and lack of nightlife at this time. It was actually invented by journalist Neil Gillett writing for the Sydney Morning Herald as a tongue-in-cheek joke comment, but it was altered by a sub to read as a direct quotation from Gardner. Sydney has always been the poor relation to Melbourne and knocks at every chance they get. Apart from being where the story is set in the book, Melbourne was familiar to the world audience from the 1956 Olympic Games held there, and it is strange watching such a big Hollywood movie using locations you've been to thousands of times, more so when they're how they looked when you were a child. Several Melbourne landmarks and streets were used to good effect, including Flinders Street Station, the GPO, rebadges Department of the Navy, the Queen Victoria Hospital, the Melbourne Science Museum, the Government Pavilion at the Royal Melbourne Showgrounds, Elizabeth and Swanson Streets, and the Final Dead City montage. An establishing scene is shot on Elizabeth Street with an abandoned car and lots of horse and bicycles to reinforce that there's no petrol left. 
as Australia did not produce any oil at this time, but there is electricity for trains and trams. The sawfish is moored at the Williamstown docks next to HMAS Melbourne, Australia's second aircraft carrier, which lasted and serviced until the 80s, which I have been on, and which my father's best mate served on at the time. The sawfish is actually the British submarine HMS Andrew, as the US Navy did not cooperate with the production at all on the pretext it was inaccurate in the way it portrayed atomic war. The Royal Australian Navy did not have any submarines at this time, but the Royal Navy's HMS Andrew was stationed uh, in Australia to assist with anti-submarine training. There is a US sub seen when the sawfish goes under the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's actually quite different. I suspect they just waited until a Navy sub passed by and got a gorilla shot. Though Holmes lives in Frankston, the beach scenes were actually filmed at Canadian Bay in neighbouring Mount Eliza, possibly because they're more photogenic or easier to keep people away from the shooting. Curiously, they don't use the view of the bay from Oliver's Hill, one of the best views in the country, though it might have been difficult to get that shot without too much public activity. The scene where Dwight meets Moira, who arrives from Melbourne by rail in a shiny new blue train, was filmed at Frankston Railway Station, and the following scene where Peck and Gardner are transported off by horse and buggy as there's no petrol, was filmed in Young Street, Frankston. At this time, Frankston was a separate beach resort town, but was swallowed up by suburbia from the 1960s, so the whole area has since been rebuilt multiple times, but there is a large mural there depicting Peck and Gardner arriving on the train. The rural scenes were shot in Berwick, then a country town, but which has also been swallowed up by suburbia in the last decade. Some streets were named after people involved in the film, including Chute Avenue and Kramer Drive. The fishing scenes were done at the Stevenson River in Marysville, which used to be a favourite vacation spot for me and my wife until it was destroyed by a firestorm in 2009. The Australian Grand Prix had the racing sequences filmed at Riverside Raceway in California and at Phillip Island Grand Prix Circuit near Cowes at Phillip Island and includes an array of late 50s sport cars. Phillip Island is located about 80 miles from Melbourne as a popular tourist destination. The California scenes were needed for the car crashes, as there were very few local stuntmen back then. Mad Max was two decades in the future. Obviously, the real San Francisco appears in the movie, but San Diego was actually Geelong, where large industrial buildings and storage tanks double for the power station that Lieutenant Thunderstorm explores. The scenes of Port Phillip Heads were shot further south in Queenscliff, the White Lighthouse appearing at the start of the film, and Ava Gardner gazing out to sea at the end. The music score by Ernest Gold uses the Australian song Waltzing Matilda to great effect, variously as epic music over the titles, for romantic interludes, and as a bush ballad sung by drunken revellers, though with an eerie twist for the final verse about the ghost of the swagman. This was written in 1895 by Andrew Barton Patterson, one of Australia's great bush poets, whose visage graces our $10 bill, with music by Marie Cowan. You may recall I used this as introductory music for some of my earlier Celluloid Day segments. On the Beach premiered in 18 theatres on all seven continents on December 17, 1959. Flash! Motion picture history is made as Stanley Kramer's production of On the Beach opens all over the world in unprecedented six-continent premieres and meets with unprecedented success as critics everywhere hail it as a motion picture milestone. New York, Mayor Robert Wagner heads the glittering array of celebrities on hand to see the picture the New York Times calls the best picture of the year. Herald Tribune also calls it best picture of the year. 
London, Soviet Ambassador Malik arrives for On the Beach premiere, and the London Standard proclaims, Magnificent, a film that must not be missed. Rome, enthusiastic crowds hail Ava Gardner, and critics hail On the Beach as, One of the most moving and touching pictures in years. Moscow, applause for Gregory Peck, who flies to Moscow for the premiere, and TASS News Agency calls the picture, A great success. Tokyo, Japan's royal family sees the film which Tokyo critics call an unprecedented event in motion picture history. Stockholm, a brilliant movie, says the Stockholm press, as huge crowds led by Sweden's King Gustav VI acclaim on the beach. Melbourne, Australia's highest dignitaries led by Premier Bolte attend the premiere, and the Melbourne Age proclaims, on the beach leaves you breathless, tremendous power and impact. Hollywood, biggest star turnout in years. Cary Grant, Fred Astaire, Dinah Shore, George Montgomery, Tony Perkins, Shirley MacLaine. One of the most important pictures ever made, shouts the Los Angeles Herald Express. Despite the quality of the movie and the hoopla surrounding it, On the Beach recorded a loss of $700,000 on first release and received mixed reviews. I suppose not exactly a first date movie. However, it acquired a fan base that agreed on many of the issues presented, including such luminaries as Dr. Linus Pauling. Bosley Crowther, in his contemporary review of the New York Times, saw the film as delivering a powerful message. In putting this fanciful but arresting story of Mr. Shoot on the screen, Mr. Kramer and his assistants have most forcibly emphasised this point. Life is a beautiful treasure and man should do all he can to save it from annihilation while there is still time. To this end, he has accomplished some vivid and trenchant images that subtly fill the mind of the viewer with a strong appreciation of his theme. The review in Variety was sombre. On the Beach is a solid film of considerable emotional as well as cerebral content, but the fact remains that the final impact is as heavy as a leaden shroud. The spectator is left with a sick feeling that he's had a preview Armageddon in which all the contestants lost. Stanley Kaufman of the New Republic wrote, when the film hews close to its theme, it is effective and valuable. When it deals with its characters as characters, it is often phony. Just as we are gripped by horror, along comes a pure Hollywood touch to remind us what we are watching is only a movie. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds a 77% approval rating based on 22 reviews with an average rating of 6.4 out of 10. In a later appraisal of both novel and film, historian Paul Bryans considered the novel inferior to the film. His contention was that the portrayal of nuclear annihilation on screen was more accurate as it was clear the world was coming to an end. Now you may ask, can the world really end that way? When the book was written, there were a limited number of nuclear weapons, which would have been delivered by bombers of a limited range, so in those days it was considered that southern cities like Melbourne, Cape Town, Montevideo, etc. would escape atomic blast. However, the development of missile submarines in the 60s and warhead proliferation made anywhere in the world at risk. Radiation sickness from atomic fallout is also a very real danger, but how it be spread and how intense it would be depends on the number of warheads used, the type of radiation released, the time passed, weather patterns and so on. The all-consuming radiation cloud as seen in the movie is thus unlikely, but the real thing would be bad enough, so let's not put it to the test. It is also worth noting that the movie in, set in 1964 and the Cuban Missile Crisis was two years earlier and that ties in nicely with the movie's timeline. Another point to consider is that when Julian Osborne describes how the war started, he says a man sitting in a desk 
probably saw a bunch of false signals on his radar set and pushed the button just in case. On 26 September 1983, around the time when Reagan was making jokes about bombing Russia at press conferences, the computers in the Serpikov 15 bunker outside Moscow, which housed the command center of the Soviet early warning satellite system, twice reported that US intercontinental ballistic missiles were heading towards the Soviet Union. Stanislav Petrov, who was duty officer that night, suspected the system was malfunctioning and managed to convince his superiors of the same thing. Had he not, well, I think you can all guess what would have happened, so thanks a lot, Stan. The movie depicts the people of Melbourne being stoic in the face of doom, carrying on as usual or focusing on trivialities and simple pleasures where possible, or in the case of Mary Holmes, denial. The movie's tone is rather like a family's reaction when faced with a terminal ill parent. No social breakdown is depicted, but would that happen if it was a real thing? Back then I think it could have, but after what we've seen recently with the response to the COVID pandemic and other social problems, no chance. Interestingly, the 2000 TV movie remake does depict a social breakdown, but otherwise sticks close to the original plot with a few updates. I tried watching it once, but it gave up when they started using Matrix-style camera moves. In 2013, there was a feature-length documentary about the movie called Fallout by Melbourne filmmaker Lawrence Johnston, which covers most of what I've been saying in considerably greater detail, and if you're interested in the movie, try checking it out. There are also some YouTube documentaries where the host does then and now visits the shoot locations, so check these out if you want to see more about this moving movie classic. Finally, in case you're wondering, the movie's title is an old Royal Navy term for decommissioned abandoned ship which is literally left on the beach. Russell, thanks. A lot of information there. Um, you know, I tend to agree with Stanley Kaufman. Personally, I would like to have seen the film deal with people who know their ultimate doom is right around the corner, you know? I mean, I suppose some people still would have tried to carry on like nothing was wrong, enjoying their last few days, but there would have also been some people, I suspect, preparing for what was to come. I mean, creating nuclear fallout shelters and whatnot. I mean, in America, nuclear fallout shelters had become a thing, so while something like this would have wiped out most of humanity, I think there would have been some survivors. I'm thinking, you know, Dr. Strangelove, when they talk about living in caves and that type of thing. And then you have people like, you know, Christopher Walken, Sissy Spacek, and Brendan Fraser. There just seemed to be something missing from the whole story. I don't know. But then again, I've never read the book, and I know that's what they were basing it on. But I think we can all agree that a nuclear war would be a bad thing, right? It's funny, you know, that we can all agree on that, yet that dark cloud is always hanging over our heads. Anyway, thanks, Russell. Very good. Anyway, we had a lot of snow in the Midwest over the weekend, so... I really appreciate you doing this episode for me. It saved me a lot of time and gave me a lot more time to clear the driveway. Yes, Lon Chaney was all of these. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Miracle Man, the Phantom of the Opera. 
The world, fascinated and thrilled, called him the man of a thousand faces. But what was the secret Lon Chaney hid behind his thousand faces? What was the mystery in his life? Now, for the first time, the true story, torn from his heart, comes to the screen. Starring James Cagney, magnificent as the fabulous Lon Chaney, master of the grotesque, the weird, the strange, and Academy Award-winning Dorothy Malone and lovely Jane Greer as the two women who made his life more astounding, more touching than any of his unforgettable roles. I'll come to see you every week. Every week. I promise you. A little bit before I go... If a realistic look at the end of the world is a little bit too much for you and you want to watch something a bit lighter, Omega Man is now available for viewing on Turner Classic Movies' On Demand channel. It was the second of three films based on Richard Matheson's book, I Am Legend, the first being The Last Man on Earth from 1964 starring Vincent Price, and of course the 2001 Will Smith film, I Am Legend, a film that... To be honest, I didn't even get through. I will point out that all three of these films change the end from the book, and the phrase I am legend has to do with the end of the book, so whatever. Someday somebody will get it right. Anyway, do you have any thoughts on On the Beach or the end of the world in general? I'd love to hear your comments. You can send them to me at daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. You can email me your thoughts, your opinions, your suggestions, or even just to say hi. I'd appreciate it. Or you can use my Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. We'd love to have you as part of the conversation. And I have a Twitter page for those of you who haven't bailed on Twitter yet. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. I do post daily there. So next week, we're going to do another episode of What's Wrong With This Picture. And we're going to look at the 1957 film Man of a Thousand Faces. The film in which James Cagney plays the silent film star Lon Chaney. A film in which the trailer tells us is the true story of the legendary star. We'll find out. Spoiler, I don't think it's all that accurate. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, and wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Russell for doing most of the episode today. It's always nice having that little break here and there. And I'll be back next week with a lot more of my jabbering. Take care. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Yeah. Multipass. You know it's multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.